Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, Molly. Um, I have recently gone down a deep dive through your podcast after finding you on Instagram. And I just want you to know how much you have helped me in my healing process of... um, just coming to my senses so much of what you said and and say and express hits so close to home and it's so reassuring to actually hear it from someone else um i don't have bpd but i resonate with a lot of everything you say um i just recently listened to your uh episode on um living in the shadow of your family tree which is something i've literally had a deep conversation with with my mom because I felt throughout my entire life just so unseen and unheard. I've never gotten the apologies that I believe that I've deserved from the way that I was raised and it really helped me and helped me almost find that sense of general forgiveness and acceptance that I needed and I just want to thank you. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is Back from the Borderline. Welcome new listeners. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. And I want to take a brief moment to thank Kelsey for this beautiful and vulnerable voicemail that she left. And I've received a lot of incredible feedback on my episode with Maureen Selenier, who is a specialist in family constellations and that 
episode that we shared together where we talk a lot about this anger and rage and righteous upsetness of the inner children within all of us that rises up and wants these apologies, wants almost to go back in time, wants acknowledgement of what we didn't get. And Family Constellations has really helped me in that same regard, Kelsey, in seeing the generational aspects. It helps me zoom out and realize what my parents went through and what their parents went through, what their parents' parents went through. And then it doesn't make any kind of abusive, neglectful behavior okay in any capacity. It doesn't excuse it. But what it can do is help us create our maps of meaning. It helps us make sense of things. Instead of thinking we are broken and bad or maybe our parents were just broken and bad people and throw everyone in the trash, it helps us start to make sense. It also begins to help us come to a sense of acceptance that not everyone is going to want to heal. Not everyone wants to develop deeper levels of self-awareness. And that includes sometimes our family members. But that doesn't mean we can't move forward. We don't have to wait on other people to start healing. And we can start understanding why people are the way they are. Why people have the certain amount of capacity that they do. And stop expecting things to be different. Letting go of that magical thinking of the child and moving into a state of acceptance and surrender to what is and again reiterating that that's not saying that anything traumatizing or abusive that happened to us is okay it's about moving forward and understanding it is what it is so thank you again kelsey for that beautiful voicemail and It brings me into introducing today's guest. This voicemail was very serendipitous to what we're talking about today. Today's guest is Tawny Lyons. And as many of my connections in recent interviews have happened, that I met her through Instagram. I'm developing such a beautiful little community of different professionals and people who are diving beyond the biomedical model of mental health and entering the realms of myth and meaning and depth psychology and Tawny is no different. I constantly find myself sharing things that she's posted and we send things back and forth and I love the way that she approaches her work. And what better way to introduce you to her than reading a little bit of the way that she describes herself. On her website, she writes, I believe at the foundation of most, if not all, pathology, diagnoses, and suffering is disconnection. Disconnection from our unstoried true nature and disconnection from authentic, vulnerable, nourishing relationships. Whether romantic, platonic, friendship, familial, flora, fauna, Unmasked, interdependent interconnection is what I am committed to, imperfectly with you. I believe that the severing from our inherent loving-kindness essence causes extreme suffering and that the more we become in tune with the internal rhythms inside of us, the more we remember this truth. 
I believe that by honoring our body's intelligence, by slowing down to listen to the story of our nervous systems and psyches, we shift chaos and dysfunction into health and expansion. I believe in the healing power of our hearts, the kind of power that shares with soul to soul, not power over or under. Something else I love about Tani is that she is a lifelong student of what she practices. This is not someone who's just gotten her degree and called it a day. You only have to go to her website and click the about section to see the incredible amount of continued education that she takes upon herself. She's taken workshops from Gabor Mate, from Peter Levine, and the list goes on. She is truly passionate about the mind-body connection. She is a student of her own spiritual path, and I respect her very, very much. I don't just have people on my podcast because they have some big follower count and I can ride the engagement wave. I select my guests really carefully, and this is why I believe the podcast has maintained its integrity. So what do we discuss on today's episode? We talk about attachment. That is the framework that this conversation is rooted around. But just as any beautiful tree with roots, we dive into many other branches of this conversation. We can't talk about systems and structures that we're a part of that really we must remove ourselves from and zoom out from to see the damage that can happen. So often we talk about family systems, but not as often do we talk about the other dysfunctional systems that we grew up in, like societal systems, churches, schools, workplaces. We touch on another really important aspect that I don't think is discussed often enough and it's a crazy making part of recovery and you'll know it if you've been there and many of you listening might be there right now it's that part of recovering from anything and I use recovery as a really wide arching thing because you could be recovering from substance abuse from generational trauma from all of these core wounds that lead all of us to listening to a podcast just like you're listening to right now And that part of your recovery journey where you begin to start seeing the patterns. You start to become more aware of when you're triggered. When you start doing those same self-sabotaging things and it's almost like you're watching yourself. It's like a car crash that you can't stop and you keep making those same mistakes. And I don't think enough people talk about that part of recovery because it's almost like you want to go back to when you just didn't even know when you were just a bull in a china shop being a nightmare at least you didn't know at least it was easier when you just thought the world was against you because when you have to really look at the ways that you're keeping yourself stuck and seeing that you kind of knee-jerk fall into these same patterns it can be so destabilizing so rough on your psyche and it can make you feel like there's no hope But I hope this episode can show you that the fact that you're even aware of these things, the fact that you are catching yourself falling into these patterns is something you need to give yourself credit for. You're never going to go back to your very unaware self, but it's going to hurt when you watch yourself make the same mistakes. But the more you keep fighting, the more that you keep 
giving yourself grace and staying aware, the less and less these things will happen. The dial will start to be turned down on the volume of your triggers and reactions. It just takes patience. So we talk about this because I think it can really make people give up when they say, oh, see, I'm never going to be able to fix this stuff. Another thing we talk about is triggers as a pathway to reconnection and healing. What we can learn from our triggers. How can we tune into our bodies when we're getting really impacted by something that someone says or something in our environments and what can this teach us about ourselves? Tani and I also discuss how life will always bring us cycles of suffering and it's pointless to imagine that we're fighting for some invisible finish line where suffering will be eliminated at the end. It's how we surf these cycles of suffering and move with the pendulum of life. Unfortunately, pop psychology tries to sell us this line that if we do just this right technique, this right mindfulness thing, buy this book, implement this way of viewing the world that we'll no longer be suffering. But suffering is part of life. And the healthiest people psychologically are the ones that learn to surf those cycles and accept their nature. We also talk about how we create self-fulfilling prophecies based upon our last traumas. And if you're out there and you've thought something like this, you're not alone. Think about the times that you said, oh, I'll go out on a few dates, I guess, but I know they're just going to leave me. Or I'll apply for that job, but I know I'm just going to get turned down. These are things that we say to ourselves all the time. And Tani and I discuss why we do this and how we can move past this kind of thinking. We also talk about the projection of trauma onto others and how this is used as a coping mechanism to turn away from our own shadows. And lastly, we dive into the idea of transference and counter-transference and how these concepts play out in therapeutic relationship. Essentially, this is how we project this all loving amazing healer energy onto a therapist we might see and if they show themselves as being human or they say something that might make us feel abandoned we could split on them and say oh this therapist is trash see they're abandoning me just like my mom or dad did etc and how important it is for us to understand why therapists have such strong and healthy boundaries and for those of us who are seeking therapy and are engaging in therapeutic relationship with a mental health practitioner understanding this stuff can really help you in those environments i titled this episode embracing your crazy and that really is the takeaway that i want you to have after listening to this interview with tawny is how can we embrace all of ourselves the crazy the dysregulated the triggers how can we shed our expectations of completely being a person with no shadows no demons and how can we engage in the dance of life in a way that allows us to surf the cyclical nature of suffering that is inherent to the human experience so without further ado, I bring you my conversation with 
Tawny Lyons. I'm Tawny Lyons and I'm a licensed MFT in the state of California. I also do coaching all over and I primarily focus on individuals and couples who are interested in having a more connected life, either with themselves, which is really important, of course, or with each other, but also with the transpersonal realm. Um, I'm focused on somatic depth and um, really just reparenting. We just had a nice little pre-chat before our interview, like I do with all my guests. So listeners understand why you're here. I followed Tawny on Instagram and she shares so much incredible information and I'll be linking her Instagram there, but I've connected to such an amazing community of depth psychology and mysticism lovers who are marrying their, their love of that world with recovering from, you know, trauma and attachment wounds and all of this stuff. And I was going through uh, Tawny's website and her Instagram today. And I thought, okay, what are, we could talk about so many different things. So I feel like I'm going to have to have you on multiple times, but today's conversation, we are going to be talking about attachment. So my first question for you, Tawny, is that most of your work or much of your work is involving the exploration of attachment. Why do you think this concept is so important for anyone starting out on their healing path? I think it's incredibly important because it's a great way to touch into depth. So understanding the roots of where we come from and how we either feel like we belong or don't belong um, and how we've learned to be in relationship. There's this concept of internal working model where it's when we're kiddos, when we're really young, how we learn from our primary caretakers, how to be, think, believe, and feel about ourselves, each other in the world. And so beginning there, I think can be really helpful to understand what our conditioning is. Like the, the if we're all just living in our own fish bowls in a way, what, what we're steeped in. Can you describe to my listeners, and I know this is a, a big question, but if you are going to describe, to describe attachment theory to someone who didn't know anything about it, mm-hmm. how would you give them kind of the attachment theory for dummies breakdown? <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's important. Okay. So I would basically say that when we are before the age of about three, we learn how to attach to our primary caregivers and the way in which we learn we're safe or not is how we're neurobiologically wired to be in the world and to feel safe or not in relationships so i don't believe that we're just one way but there are four distinct attachment styles and it's anxious avoidant disorganized and secure there's also different ways of calling them based on the research where you're a kid or an adult but those are the ones that are most commonly used and disorganized is the the one that's least frequently talked about i think but it's really important to talk about and that's the one where there's been a considerable amount of relational trauma or your parents had dysregulated nervous systems in their own unprocessed trauma so if you're really really interested in a lot of psychology stuff um you know it's great to learn about avoidant anxious and disorganized and see how you can fit into all the different pieces because nobody's just one way that's interesting that you bring that up because one of my questions was that nearly everyone tuning into the podcast has likely seen a thousand and one instagram carousels or infographics talking about the different attachment styles and it feels like 
much of social media-based self-help involves shoving ourselves into these different labeled boxes and identities. But what I love about your work is that you explore these concepts through a more nuanced and complex framework that doesn't feel like a personality quiz. (laughs) And what do you think mainstream pop psychology or Instagram style self-help misses out on when it comes to exploring these complex concepts like attachment styles? There's the, first of all, I really love that question. And Mm. I uh, really think nuance is missing from most of pop psychology. It's for many reasons. I think it's the, this field has been really commodified online and capitalized on, which makes sense because we live in a capitalistic culture. So one thing that feels really important to me to speak to is something that Jessica Fern talks about who wrote the book, Polysecure. Um, and it's called the nested model of attachment. And this is pretty ancient and old, depending on who you talk to, just like most things in psychology. But the idea being that we don't just attach to our primary caregivers or or our romantic partner or partners. We also attach and have relationships with communities, with culture at large, with religion, with politics, with our environment to nature, with books and education. We can have this kind of nested model if you imagine like the nesting dolls where one small doll is a medium and then the larger it's like that and we're at the we're at the we're the very small one that's like ourself and then the way that we relate from everything like our dog or our cat to our sense of purpose or god or higher self or whatever we can securely attach to it we can feel hyper vigilant and anxious with it we can feel dismissive of it or we can have this really erratic, more disorganized relationship with it. And I think that's really important to know because we can have secure functioning relationships that aren't human that nourish us. I love your response to that. And it makes me think about when I started on my journey, right? Exploring depth psychology helped me understand that, you know, family systems theory is so helpful. So when you're thinking about, you know, um, the mobile model of Virginia Satir, where she says, you think about the family system when you touch a child's mobile over the crib, that when the different pieces move, everything moves, right? If you you have that like beautiful, um, if you can imagine a mobile over a crib for children, you know, it's like the little thing, the mom dangles above the crib and the baby touches it. When you touch one piece of that, it has like little animals on it, not just one animal moves, the whole thing moves. And that's how um, they de- she describes the the nature of the family system. But something that I loved about your response here is that many of us in our recovery p- times, we're just thinking about the nuclear family, but there are other family systems that we're involved in, in our church, and if we grew up in a church, in our um, our uh, like little pod at school, the kids that you're in, that's also a family system. And people take on dysfunctional roles. People take on the scapegoat role at school in the group of friends, right? Or the hero or the whatever. And so starting to think about myself as a part in a larger system has been so liberating for me. And the second thing that came up in your response that I thought of is God is seen as a punitive father figure, right? And so my own mystical uh, explorations too has helped me move out of that. And it reminds me of like attachment theory, right? If we have a certain attachment style, you can even think of something like 
the source or the universe or the all as Mm -hmm. a punitive person that's going to abandon you or judge you. And so attachment is so incredibly important, almost maybe the most important thing that we can explore. So I'd, I'd love to hear your reaction to that. I mean, I'm just 100% with you. I just had this image come to mind of sometimes on the back of cars, there will be those bumper stickers that say, fear God. Yes. And I just have this experience in my body of freeze when I see that. And then sadness of like, wow, to live in the world, uh, believing that this ultimate source that controls you kind of is going to, like you said, punish you or abandon you. Yeah. Like, where, how can you ever feel like your feet are stable on the ground? Yeah. So God as a borderline, <laughs> right? God, God splitting on us. Like, come on, right? right. Like, and that's everywhere. Everywhere. And that's another reason why labels like borderline can just be thrown in the trash. Because I talked to my premium subscribers the other day that Zaz, my husband, came back from a walk and he was so excited to come tell me this. Because obviously he's just has to hear about all of this stuff all the time. <laughs> against his will most of the time. And uh, he came back and he said, oh my God, I was just on a walk. And he said he was walking next to two just quintessential suburban moms and they're doing their little morning power walk. And one of them, he said he caught just like a snippet of their conversation as they walked by. And one of them went, yeah, she's, she's just totally borderline, obviously. And like kept walking. And it made me think like, we're just doing this all the time. That's why these labels suck because we can on one hand say, oh, I'm so liberated by my label. But while you're feeling liberated by your borderline personality label and talking about it openly, what other people are going to do is use it to shove you in this, oh, crazy box. And that's what I don't like, you know? And it's ironic that on one hand, these women will probably look up the symptoms of borderline and say, yeah, she's bad. Meanwhile, they're engaging and splitting. <laughs> exactly. The irony. Yeah. Well, it's really sad because I think a lot of, and I imagine, I know you've talked about this too, but things like borderline and any kind of diagnosing, especially for women, has a really long history yes. of telling us that we're crazy, that we belong in an institution, that we don't make sense. And Hysteria. Men- Hysteria, exactly. The wandering uterus. I was about to say wandering womb, like that whole bullshit. It's basically based upon the fact that these men didn't understand. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, you know, men aren't understood either. You know, like heart problems, suicidality, you know, we're all really harmed by the way that just like you're speaking to those two women, women that are probably really hurting on the inside, the way that we're so divided from each other and from our own parts. And if I'm going to be ridiculous, our own craziness, like if we could all embrace our own craziness, I think we'd live a happier life. (laughs) And normalizing the fact, normalizing the crazy, you know, I, I just had a listener call in on the last episode and he was just such a sweetheart. He's 30 years old and straight guy just calling in and saying that he got ghosted for like the fifth time by a girl. And he was like, I'm trying not to send like the 25 page long text that turns into a note on your iMessage. You know, we all have been there. And he said that he found the concept of borderline through Pete Davidson and he felt so 
recognize, but he said it, he talked about the difficulty being a straight guy with really big feelings, with a lot of sensitivity. And you're so, and I said at the beginning of that, I was like, the guys are not all right either. None of us are all right. You know, we're we're all being stigmatized in our own way for hearing voices, having big emotions, and the psychopathology comes from nothing more than being told that that's not normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when we're labeled or when a person believes that there's something wrong with them, there's so much resistance. And that I believe is what keeps those emotions becoming bigger because it really only takes about 90 seconds for an emotion to or feeling to travel through our physiology. But I think when we're stuck into these frameworks of identity that are more calcified, it becomes larger and larger these feelings inside of us where then it becomes explosive and harmful to ourselves and people around us instead of just saying, hey, you have, you have a big feeling of sadness right now. That's so normal. Precisely. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I also think I'd be curious to know what your reaction to this is. I have a really close friend, um, who I won't identify her name, but she listens. And we've been friends for over 10 years now. And she's also has really big feelings. And we got into this discussion where, because Zaz has expressed to me, I tend to let my emotions take over. And so I will overreact and sometimes be very explosive with my emotions. And he said something that really stuck with me before I quit my job. He said, you know, because I would get so frustrated in my old job. I was working in tech. And when I saw things that were unjust or not right, like I will be the one to speak it out and say it. Zaz is more of the person who plays chess, right? He picks and chooses. He waits for his moment. He sometimes just picks silence. I never choose silence, right? I'm always just like, I have to have my two cents. And Zaz said, you know, Molly, you do yourself a disservice sometimes because you have such a good point to make and you're right, but you make it so easy for people to push you off as crazy and over the top because of the way that you you let your emotions just completely pop out when you could just digest them, wait, yeah. and then pick the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think holds a lot of us highly sensitive, super emotional people back is probably just that. Do you, do you, have you found that in your life and also maybe even the clients that you work with? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're not, I don't know that you're speaking to rage or large anger. Maybe you are because you mentioned justice, but I think sometimes I know for myself, it can feel like it's not even mine. It can feel like intergenerational rage that I need to make sure sure that this is okay and just and um and i think it makes sense but that isn't necessarily going to transform in fact tara brock talks about ruth king's quote a lot i just ordered her book i haven't read it yet on rage but ruth king says that anger is initiatory not transformational mm. yeah can you describe what that means to you, that phrase of, of rage being initiatory? Yeah, that means to me that it is a way for me or for somebody to know that all the parts of them are valid, you know, to, to meet every single part and not cast it aside or, or live in secret, but to say, yes, you deserve to live in the light of truth. Mm. And we need to take a sacred pause. We need yes. to take a pause to be with this, to honor that pain and to recognize that 
inflicting that pain on others is doing the same thing that's probably been done to you or your ancestors. So it stops here. That is so profound. It reminds me too of, you know, the parts work where I've had to recognize it's so great that you're talking about this because in two episodes where listeners will be listening to this in the future. So listeners will have already heard this episode. So we're recording this listeners on September 15th, 2023, but you will have already heard an episode about rage. I just did a huge episode on rage. And what I did was I spent like seven hours on YouTube finding like my favorite parts of TV and movie where people are like screaming, like gutturally, like, fuck you, just like really like letting it all out. And it was so cathartic making that edit. And I talk about my love of like the Kill Bill movies and even Tarantino. He is so good at portraying like rage and revenge. And I love Inglorious Bastards. I love Django Unchained. I love like Death Proof, all these movies. I always wondered why I was drawn to that. And it's because I know that I've always, I was always too small and too and not powerful enough to express my my rage i knew when things were wrong and what i recognized is that then i turned into beatrix kiddo from kill bill where it's like i felt like i had to to have revenge and act that out but now like you said rage being initiatory i can say hey you can have a seat at the table but yes. my higher self is the director of the orchestra. So I'm going to listen to you as an advisor, but I'm also going to listen to my wise part, to my compassionate part, take all of that knowledge and then filter it through my higher self. And like you said, take the sacred pause, but holy fuck is that hard? And do I, do I achieve that often? No. <laughs> Some of the time you do. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> and, but the most important part is that I've realized that's the way. And it, I'm so early on, I bet you, it's like when I talked to James Hollis, he, <laughs> at the end of our conversation, I was just telling him how, how like, what do I do next? Like, do I become a Jungian analyst? Like, what am I going to do? And he goes, do you understand? Like you're 33 and the fact that you're having these realizations is like huge at your age. He goes, just take it step by step. And I'm like, ah, yes, patience, fuck that. <laughs> Oh, I'm so there with you. Right? Like I want it now. I just want to, because there's nothing worse than becoming aware and then almost watching yourself like a car crash. Like you, you, you are watching yourself do the same stupid shit and then you go, I should know better. And that's mm -hmm. the pain that I hear in many of my listeners that call in. They are binge listening to hours of my podcast. They have such high levels of self-awareness. Yeah. They can't seem to stop doing this. So Tawny, how have you been able to actually incorporate the sacred pause? Because that's what I'm struggling with too. It's like, how can we avoid those times where it's like we lose complete control? We snap at our partner. I still do it, especially when I'm PMSing, right? And then I see the fall of the face of the people I love after I like mini lash out at them. And I'm like, God, and those things add up over time. That's the thing. They whittle away at our relationships. So we have to get a control over this. They can. Yeah, they absolutely can. And I want to take a step back for a second when you were talking about how you felt very small and how you've been really small. And I want to yeah. bring the nervous system for a moment. And it relates back to your question. Yeah, go for um, it. You know, being in that experience of smallness, there's a potential 
that there could have been some sort of freeze or collapse. Like I know when I'm feeling like I need to become small, I'm in that very feeling dismissed um, and rejected sense of self. And so to get to that place of rage, if you were to imagine the nervous system as a ladder, the bottom rung would be that collapse place, the freeze place. And to climb up the ladder, oftentimes we're gonna need to add in some energy to get into the ventral vagal, to get into that window of tolerance where you're feeling safe and social and not activated, right? And so it makes sense to swing sometimes to that rage because it's adding in what you need in order to become alive again. And so bringing in that, that um, you know, in Tara Brock's words, I love her radical acceptance for that experience is really helpful. And then I think also remembering if we come from families of dysfunction, which in some ways who doesn't, there could have been a lot of chaos or not a lot of chaos, but a lot of chaos on the inside, but there wasn't repair. So when there are those, you know, obstructions between connection, when there's that disconnection, if we can come back, be accountable and slow down then, then we're, then we're, we have open palms and an open heart to say, Hey, I'm here to repair with you. And I know this isn't okay. And to me, that's a real salve. Ugh. Amanda Palmer, you know, the lead singer of the Dresden Dolls, like she has the most amazing Substack. I dedicated an entire episode to reading out one of her articles and she talks about rupture and repair yeah. and how important that is. Mm -hmm. And you made me think of something because so many people really head fuck themselves where they're like, oh, my childhood wasn't that bad, right? Oh, it wasn't that bad. But when you look at it back through the lens of rupture and repair, like, how many times was your trust broken? How many times did you get disconnected from your intuition? How many times did you know when something was wrong, but your parents said, ah, oh, no big deal. Don't cry. I'll give you something to cry about, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? And then it was swept under the rug, right? And when that happens, that whittles away at your intuition, your intuitive faculties, your sense of right and wrong. It builds up, like you said, the body keeps the score. It's held in your nervous system. So sometimes I have to remind myself when I'm getting really annoyed at something that I'm like, why am I so annoyed about this? Like, it's not that. It's recalling a moment in the past where I mm -hmm. felt that way and asking myself questions like, when have I felt like this before? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's coming up for a reason and these things will keep circling back because it's it's the universe conspiring to help you heal. But yeah. if we ignore it, then it's just going to, these situations are going to keep coming around and around again. Yes. And I think that's a way uh, healthier and hopeful lens around triggers. And it also seems more true too, that our triggers or, or the ways that we're activated can actually be pathways to liberation and connection. Yes. It's like me on the podcast, every episode I introduce, symptoms are your saviors, right? Yeah. We're thinking of our yeah. symptoms as things that need to be numb, suppressed as bad, or as things that make you different. Mm -hmm. Everyone has symptoms. I don't know a single person right now. Show me a person that is fully integrated, that has no anxiety, no depression. They don't exist. No. They, they don't. do not exist, even at the highest level, even maybe your, you know, your psychologist, your depth psychologist, that's been, James Hollis, right? Even now, he told me, you know, when we did our interview, it was on Carl Jung's birthday. We didn't even know. I'm 33. He's 83. Mm -hmm. And he has been in the hospital this whole last year. And he said that he is struggling now 
uh, I won't put words in his mouth. He didn't use those words. He just said he is now approaching different questions in his life. He's approaching the end of his life and these questions and God willing, he'll be around for much longer. People live for very long. People are a hundred years old. But, and man, he, he was like, I gotta go. I have like five more clients today. This man's 83 years old and he's just fucking yeah. doing it, mm-hmm. but he has a purpose, right? Yeah. And he's being driven by that. Yeah. But he said, he's dealing with these questions. Mm-hmm. Every phase of our life will come with more suffering, mm-hmm. more difficult questions. And the less, the, the less we cling on to, oh, as soon as I get rid of all my symptoms, then everything will be better because that's not real. That's not reality. Yes, you said it. Yeah, it's not reality. And also it sounds a bit, <laughs> it sounds a bit boring, you know, like we're not meant to be robots. Um, we need friction, not to create it and to harm each other, but in order to know where I begin and you end and I end and you begin, you know, like it makes me think of boundaries. And and also when you're speaking to rupture and repair, that's a huge part of attachment theory. Um yes. And boundaries are too, right? And and I think that that relates to not being perfect because it enables us to be in harmony with each other and our differences too. I love that a lot. I I think that part of the reason why we're seeing suicide rates skyrocket, mental health uh, go down, 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 you know, like I just did an episode where the New York times just did a, an article called we've reached peak therapy as in we have better access to mental health than ever before art, but even though it's still not great. Right. But it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's cause we're not asking the right questions and we are literally trying to, we're trying to solve the wrong problems, right? My suffering if I understand it, that's why I love mythology and why I love depth psychology. My suffering has made me unique. It's made me interesting. It's made me have experiences that I can now share with other people to help them move through their life. That's why, you know, wise old elders would be the most respected people among the tribe, right? Because you can go to them and Saz has a, um, I think Ray Dalio is a really famous, uh, um, VC capital investor, but he's also a very wise person. And he wrote a book called principles. And he basically says that after studying markets for 30 plus years, he says that people around him are freaking out saying, Oh no, it's, it's going up, it's going down. And he goes, it's just another one of those. I've seen these before. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what me and Zaz say here is like, it's just another one of those, right? Like, Oh, I'm feeling depressed today. It's another one of those. And today I'm feeling better. I was having like a really down four days. And then I realized like, even without doing anything, naturally I come into a better state and then it goes down. I'm never going to just be feeling good. It's just not, it's not the way life works. The moon goes in phases. The tides go in phases. The seasons go in phases. Mm -hmm. We are no different. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I think, yeah, maybe what changes, and I, I've experienced this for sure, is our relationship to that change mm. instead of the actual underlying things changing necessarily. And my meditation teacher, Vinnie Ferrara, often says, right now it's like this. And that's really helpful for me. It's pretty much like it's another one of those, right? Maybe. Like, yeah, that's why these people, these elders, these people who have kind of 
have the ability and created the space to zoom out mm-hmm. by 50,000 feet. Yeah. That's why those people like that are so regulating because they can kind of help you have perspective. Because when we're zoomed up too far in and we're just thinking about our own little suffering, mm-hmm. it's impossible to, to quote unquote feel better um, because you're just looking at this tiny little moment and you can't, you can't regulate unless you like detach and zoom out. Yeah. And I think that's where the split lives is when we're just up this close to each other where our faces are touching, you know, that there's this anger or disruption, dysregulation and disconnection from each other. And I think that especially in this kind of love and light culture too, the pendulum can also swing. Like if we're always 50,000 feet away, then we're not engaged in the suffering enough. So it's like this balance this dance right like Ram Dass would say you could do it like it's a great weight on you or you could do it like it's part of the dance and 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 I think it can be a dance to be in that balanced place it doesn't have to we don't have to be like Atlas you know with the the world on our back like it's already there we don't have to add to it yes Uh, there is a meme that I have in my phone that like my, my graveyard of memes that I use to collect, to post on my Instagram. One of them is Atlas and uh, it it has a picture of him like carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And it says like, you're going to be dragging that weight a long time, bro, or something (laughs) like that. It's like, yeah. And it's all about perspective, right? Like you don't have to have the weight on. It's a choice that you make. People don't like to hear that, but, but it actually is because that's what I'm, I'm my main like mantra right now is like, I'm working on acceptance and surrender, even though that's like the hardest, the hardest thing. Um, but I have a, I have another question for you because I I have more questions about acceptance and surrender. So we're going to be getting to that, but I wanted to circle back to the concept of attachment and I'd be curious to know from your perspective and your work in your own life, your research, and even work with clients, mm-hmm. how might attachment experiences early in life contribute to the development of particularly emotion regulation difficulties in adulthood? What an amazing question. <laughs> I think it's hard to separate them, honestly. It's really hard for me to separate somatics, like emotional regulation um, and dysregulation and completion experiences in our body from attachment, especially if we consider that the nervous system, the womb that we were in and the, and the other humans that we were around in utero and then as a child, that created our nervous system. Their nervous system created our nervous system. So if that was dysregulation and we're disorganized, anxious or avoidant, then of course that's the pathway that we're going to go on in our relationships. But it doesn't have to be a life sentence, but I think, yes, 100% that they are related until we begin to branch out and recognize that there are other ways to be. And then it takes time. It takes patience to groove out those new reactions, to make them responses, um, to have new ways of thinking and being and feeling because it's like we literally are grooving out new neural pathways. You said like there is no difference, you know, and I, I think that's so true. It makes me think of just siblings and families because you see 
in families, some siblings are really struggling, some mm-hmm. are not. And it's so complicated because we have different, you know, ways that we uh, express our emotions. In my interview with Dr. Anita Federici, she introduced me to the concept of like emotional under control and, and emotional over control, yeah. which is an amazing concept that blew my mind. And so different kids are going to be wired different ways. And I think that they're like, they say they're children that are orchids and children that are dandelions, you know, like where it's like some kids are just very sensitive and they need a very sensitive and attuned caregiver. Some kids are, are what are they, that a dandelion where maybe they'll be a bit more resilient and they're not going to respond. Also something that I've been learning recently is the way that our birth happened can have a huge impact on our later attachment wounds. My sister was a vaginal birth. My parents were a lot more secure when they had my sister. Meanwhile, I was born when my parent, I was a not planned pregnancy and my mom had to have a last minute cesarean section. And then I developed sepsis as an infant Mm -hmm. and I had to spend my uh, first period of time just in in an incubation chamber. And my mom sent me a picture of me the other day, like when I was in the incubation chamber and I'm just in this tiny little, you can imagine a preemie baby, right? When they're just in this tiny box, people can only stick their finger through. It's like a gorilla in a cage, you know? Like, and I, it made me cry looking at that image because I thought, oh, like, can you imagine how scared I must have been? You know, it's gonna like makes me cry. Like, and I'm just going like, and but it connecting to those the those memories is really important because I didn't have that like motherly attachment right in the beginning when I needed it. It was yeah. no fault of my mom's. My mom said she was so anxious, and we're still connected to our moms even when we're just born. So I'm just I'm feeling that anxiety, you know, as a baby when you can't make any sense of it. And mm-hmm. I've always had very free floating anxiety and very scared of being alone and in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense, right? Because that's connecting to early memories. Yeah. hundred percent pre-verbal, just that yes. sense in body. And when you were just speaking to that, I saw you put your hand on your heart a few times and mm-hmm. it just imagine that's a place to really connect to that little baby Molly. You know, but only had a finger when what she probably need was, needed was a huge embrace and just to be held, like the parts of her held together. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, everyone. It's that time of the podcast for a short break. The placement of programmatic, dynamically placed advertisements here on the podcast allows me to continue supporting myself as many people like to listen to the podcast for free rather than becoming a member on Patreon, which is totally okay. I know that finances can get tight. I do my best to create these little pauses because I know how jarring it can be to be taken out of a really emotional conversation and then just get blasted with an ad. I don't choose which ads they play. This is just like YouTube where you have short ad breaks and then get back to the content. So for now, listen to these ads and then we will get right back into the conversation with Tawny and I. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's so important for listeners out there, right? Like, explore not only your, you know, what was quote unquote done to you in your childhood home. It's like, what was your birth like? What, what was going on with your mom, even when she was pregnant with you? Mm -hmm. Um, just it's, it's all connected. Everything's connected and asking yourself those questions of, you know, when did I feel this before? And this brings me to my next question I had for you, Tony, because I wrote down depth psychology often explores the unconscious and the shadow self. How might unresolved attachment issues contribute to the formation of a shadow or unconscious elements that affect emotion regulation? Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think until we become aware and conscious of our attachment dysfunction, <laughs> don't exactly love that word, mm-hmm. it potentially is a part of the shadow, right? Like our, yeah. our, like if we start to nitpick in relationship, if we start to say or blame, or if we begin turning away and um, self-soothing, but from a place of defensiveness and dismissiveness of others, like that's that could be seen those two examples as anxiousness or avoidance that could be a part of the shadow that would be unconscious until you realize what you're actually doing. And that might sound really simple, but when we're in the reactionary state, it takes, it can take really slowing down. I like to imagine it like pouring molasses over your life or, or in somatic experiencing, they say it's like watching paint dry Mm. really notice, um, you know, what is the sensation that's coming up when I'm wanting to make this reaction? What's the image? What meaning am I making from it? What behavior do I want to make? What behavior do I want to do? And so when, until we make that conscious, it is unconscious. Precisely. And I love how you said you don't like the phrase um, like disorder or dysfunction because neither do I. And I'd be curious what you think about this. I'm reading this new book and I'm going to have to send it to you after the interview. It's by um, a guy I follow on Twitter. He's a psychoanalyst. His name's Alex Monk. And the book's called Trauma and the Supernatural in Psychotherapy, uh, Working with the Curse Position in mm-hmm. Clinical Practice. And what I love is he talks about how like you feel cursed, right? And how when we feel cursed, mm-hmm. we tend to reenact the trauma that we're doing. And what I love is I love how he says the curse position. And in the book, he talks about how it's like, you could even, it made me think like, I love using borderline position or narcissistic mm-hmm. position because yeah. instead of saying I am borderline, it's like I am occupying a borderline position right now, but yes. that doesn't have to be forever, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
I love the idea of thinking about feeling cursed. I think that's easier to even think about than the unconscious or the shadow, because when we feel cursed, it's almost, and it's the, how Christians view the concept of the devil or demonic forces. It's like the internalized critical parent is the devil, is the curse position. It is, it's the voices or feelings that you are feeling that tell you that you, this is going to always be the same. It limits you, right? That's how I see the shadow is like limiting things that try to convince me that it's always going to be this way, or you should have done this different. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's kind of how I have been trying to view it. But I love the concept of like using this word as like the blank position. Yeah, that's wonderful. Because then yeah. an idea, it's, it's not who you are. Yeah. You're a verb and not a noun. I love that. And we can also yes. think about it too. I love that the cursed position. I mean, I don't love that experience, but with if I think I'm anxious, like mm -hmm. if I think I'm anxiously attached, I'm going to approach you, Molly, or anyone from that place of I'm less than you. I'm not worthy of your love, most likely. Yeah. You know, that's one potentiality. Or if I'm avoidant, I'm gonna think, all right, the closer I get to you, the more we're gonna be enmeshed. And like, I want you to get away from me or, or if I'm disorganized, if I'm experiencing that disorganized position, I'm going to look at you and think I'm going to be really hurt by you. I'm so scared. Right. And so, yeah. It's mm -hmm. like when you're dating someone and you're like, you're going to break my heart. I know it, you know, like guys, like I've heard that from, from guys and it's like a statement and it's like, you're already manifesting that reality. I hate you sometimes, again, some of these phrases have really been really butchered into pop psychology and like spiritual woo, but it's so true. Words are spells. So when we speak that out, right, I hear all the time, oh, I'll apply for that job, but I'm probably not gonna get it, right? Or, you know, I'll, I'll go on a few dates, but I know they're just gonna end up leaving me. That's, that's that shadow. Yes. The shadow, I know the shadow can be so confusing how it's spoken about, but I think it's really easy to understand in a way when we recognize it's what we're not questioning. Yes. It's, you know, it's the conditioning that we're in that we believe to be true. Yes. And we believe it's, it's us, but that's the importance of parts work. That's the importance of, and I think people can get too bogged down with all this clinical theory because it can be confusing. But if you think of the fact, that's why I love mysticism and spirituality, true integral spirituality, um, not dogmatic of like finding out who you truly are. You are not those limiting voices. You are not even the manic side of yourself. That's like, I'm going to go shop. Like when you're feeling happy, you are that still calm place that you talk about like that sacred pause but most of us are so busy identifying with whatever thoughts we never realize who we truly are mm -hmm. yeah yes and I, I also think it has a lot to do with our nervous system state too you know because i've worked with a lot of folks and i've definitely been this in this place in my life where if somebody speaks to me about my, my my wise mind or wise consciousness or buddha consciousness christ consciousness there can be this defeatism around it of like no but i don't have that part i am not inherently good and there's like real like yeah it's like sadness and uh depression and I think that's where it can, one of the ways it can be really important to recognize what is the set and setting of your psyche right now? <laughs> you 
know, like, are you in more of a collapse state? And let's bring some energy in so you can feel that aliveness of, yes, you two are good. You have a good soul in there. Yes. It's, it is so easy to, I mean, I spent many years of my life like that. Like I split on religion or very spiritual people for so long because I was like, ugh, whatever. Yeah. Right. They just, they're like, they are delusional. <laughs> even like, it's crazy how you can even watch someone like Ramdas, who's like, you know, incredibly like this person who, in my opinion, had such a way with being able to help bridge that like Eastern and Western thought and really contributed to a lot of, of people in the Western world, like being able to see the concept of non-duality and, and, but when I would encounter those things before I was ready, you know, before I was ready to let that in, I was like, oh, that's such bullshit, right? Like rolling my eyes at it because I, but when I realized I had internalized that view of patriarchal God, and I had also realized, and I had to actually let myself under, myself understand that I was pushing spirituality away from me because deep down I believed that I was not good, you know, mm -hmm. and the world was not good and the universe did not have my back. And I think that's the reality that so many of us are, are walking around with. Yeah, 100%. And what you just said is like attachment on so many levels, mm -hmm. attachment to patriarchy, this organizing structure, attachment to religion. But then there's this also real experience of Ram Dass was a man. He was yes. a human, right? And so you think about people like Alan Watts. And yeah, he had a really, a lot of great things to say. He helped found the school that I went to for graduate school. I like really loved him, still finding the work to be really great. And history says he was quite a misogynist. You know, and so, you know, we can try and separate the art from the artist, but I think that that protection that came on board for you, Molly, is also in some ways really healthy when it comes to charismatic leaders. Yes. We don't want to split, yes. but we want to be aware that, yeah, we're all human too. And is somebody living in integrity, not just saying really beautiful spiritual truths, but are they also living it and embodying it? That's so true. And you're right. My biggest thing has always been authority figures, right? Like, I grew up with a very punitive, like authoritarian kind of father. And so that has meant that bosses, uh, anyone, like even partners, like if you try to tell me what to do, go fuck yourself. So that also extended to daddy God. And yeah. <laughs> I've had, and I've had to understand that thankfully I've, wow, what's been healing for me is mm -hmm. Tara Brock, like um, Mirabai Starr is another person who I love her work. Reading the work of more mystical leaning spiritual women was great for me because it just helped me get another perspective. And that I'm not saying there are some men out there that are doing beautiful work, people all across the gender spectrum who are integrated and you can tell also. But the thing is, you have to seek to find these people because what they're doing is they're not aggressively marketing themselves. They're not, you know what I mean? Because I don't think that that really resonates with a very like integrated spiritual position. So that's the kind of shitty part, right? Is I feel like the most powerful spiritual teachers, they're really hard to find, but that's why they say that when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? You have to actually go on a, a search 
for these kind of people. But then you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because Alan Watts has some fucking incredible oh, yeah. lectures. So, so does Ram Dass, right? I was just reading out a Ram Dass on Night Night Bitch. And I have to admit, I omitted a couple of parts because I was just like, oh, what the fuck did he just say there, right? But we can't split on the teacher, yeah. you're right? We have to understand that they are sharing some amazing spiritual truths, but they also have their own veil through which they see the world and that's going to come out. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I know this is sometimes used as an excuse, but it's true that these people were also a product of their times, their trauma. Yes. 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 It's just like Carl Jung. You can read his stuff and you're going to hear that it was written in that time, right? Like they these people were not, um, they weren't superhuman, right? They, they, they weren't growing up in the time that we are where they have this more, but again, I'm sure people are going to probably listen back to what we're saying in 60 years and be like, what the fuck were Tawny and Molly talking about? <laughs> Hopefully not. I, I have a feeling this conversation will age well, Tawny, but it's not like watching friends where you're like, what the fuck? This did not, this did not age well. Whenever I watch back some of those 90 sitcoms, I'm like, you know, but the thing I hear you and I wonder if for me, I've been noticing when I make that like cringy face is usually mm. there's, when there's some sort of huge division, when there's shame and power and domination, like whether it's like through making jokes at each other that are not jokes or whatever, maybe between races and gender, it, it, it often feels like that's the theme for me that feels icky, which we could also call a psychological split like other. Yes. Yes. And that's, but that is the whole, our biggest problem right now, in my opinion. And maybe it's been like that. Maybe that is the the core issue across thousands of years, right? Is these, these ones are bad. I just did my scapegoat series and the whole origin of the concept of scapegoat was it's an ancient Jewish tradition for the tribe to pick a a goat where the tribe puts all of their shame on that one goat and they actually pick a strong resilient goat that's the thing like so if you're a scapegoat that's the gift of the scapegoat you actually are strong enough to be the trash can for the trauma of an entire collective and they would send that goat out into the desert to die right and take the sins of the tribe with it and that's what we're doing now to so many different marginalized groups right and the thing is everyone's doing it like it's not just a conservative thing or a liberal thing or a patriarchal thing it's like i'm watching it now from a zoomed out lens and going like everyone's participating in this you're bad the othering the toxic othering yes yes and what a beautiful portal to discovering shatter right there is through projection through blame through that pointing their finger out, if we can bring that in and see what inside of me am I not loving that I'm hating in this other person? Yes. You know, another question I had for you was kind of about therapy. And you're a perfect person to ask because you work in therapeutic relationship with people. And many of my listeners are either like on a waiting list or trying to find a therapist, or maybe they are in therapy now. Mm -hmm. And the question I wrote was attachment theory typically focuses on the caregiver child relationship. How can we apply depth psychology to understand the transference and counter transference dynamics that might emerge when individuals with emotion dysregulation seek help and therapy? How does that play out? How do people's emotion dysregulation or attachment issues 
play out in the therapeutic relationship so that my listeners can kind of be aware of that, right? Because we can start to, I used a lot of academic jargon just now, but like my, I've gone into counter-transference and transference on the podcast, so listeners should be fairly familiar with that. But can you maybe describe how that plays out in therapeutic relationship? Yeah, that, that's such an incredibly complex question that I really love. Yeah, um, <laughs> I figured you could handle it. <laughs> you talk about this stuff a lot. So I was like, I think, and also you are trained through this lens. So it's really interesting to, to bring it up for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking it. And it feels really up for me now. I've been really thinking about boundaries therapeutically. I think it's really important and that matters to me in terms of transference and counter-transference and learning secure attachment in the therapeutic relationship, because whatever is going to happen outside of the therapy room is probably going to happen inside of the therapy room at some point. That's a big part of transference and counter-transference, right? Is being able to project and feel safe enough to see your mom or your dad or your partner or your siblings in that person. And the difference being, hopefully you're going to be able to feel secure enough and the therapist is going to have capacity enough and their own, um, attachment and emotional regulation to be able to hold whatever is coming up for them. So it can come across by being really hypervigilant with a therapist. Like I need you to be really, really attuned to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It can come across as not bringing really anything up and wanting the therapist to kind of bring it out of you. Those are just two very, you know, basic ways that it could come up. It looks like you're about to say. I do. Yeah. (laughs) I talk about it like good mommy, bad mommy. Like people do this to me as a podcaster. So I can't even imagine how it feels. Like, for example, like we can split on our therapists and we see our therapists almost as like if they're a mom, a a woman or a man, like maybe we're good daddy, bad daddying our therapist, right? It's like we expect them if they want, if how it might play out is like, if they say what you want to hear, right? And they're encouraging you and stuff, like they're good mommy. But the moment that your therapist maybe shows any kind of humanity, maybe if you kind of like look out the window or something and you immediately think, oh, they're ignoring me, right? It's happening again. Like immediately we are bad mommying our therapist. And it happens with me in the podcast too, right? I literally had it happen where I will have a follower, a listener who is very active saying, oh, your podcast has changed my life. I love your work so much. And I don't respond to their email because I don't respond to listener emails because I literally just don't have the capacity A and B, it's not ethically appropriate for me to be getting back and forth. And I've gotten emails of like, fuck you. You said that you were so, you were here for us and you're just ignoring me, right? So it's like, that's how it plays out is like, I am now your abandoning mom, even though I'm literally just a podcaster you don't know. (laughs) Yeah, which also, you know, first of all, that's a terrifying position for you to be in probably. Yeah, it's not fun because the thing is I don't want to hurt anyone, but I have Mm -hmm. to understand that I'm doing the right thing by not replying. And, um, but watching it play out is mostly, in the beginning it was harder. Now I just go, I learned from my uh, somatic therapist. She does this thing and listeners won't see it, but like you tap on your chest and you go, me, 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 you, you, you. And then you kind of like, and I have to do that a lot. Like with, with my, when I get an email like that, I'm like, me, 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 you, 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 because I have to remember like, that's not my stuff, right? They're putting it on to me, but I don't have to carry it. 
Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to carry it. And yeah. it all it makes sense when people have that experience too, yeah. because it's confusing. Um, social media, podcasting, therapy, whatever, these are confusing things. Like I'm close to you, but I'm not close to you. Mm. I feel like I know you, but you don't know me or the other way around, you know, like I don't know. They're putting you on a pedestal. You know what I mean? Right? Like it's so easy, especially I would imagine when you're a good therapist, right? They're, they're putting you on this pedestal. I also have a really close friend who runs a a larger uh, mental health page and she, and she's also a practicing therapist. And she just says, you know, she does DBT stuff. So her clients can like call her when they need her and she just talks about how like when she has a particularly like suicidal client or something and they're just calling her phone a million times and usually she answers but she was going on a vacation once and she had to tell the person like hey i'm going on vacation so i'm not going to be answering anything let's make us a, a safety plan right so if you feel like you're in crisis but i am not going to answer texts or calls when i'm on my vacation mm-hmm. long story short the, the, the client had a crisis and she was unable to respond to her, but it put my friend, like she said that it was literally ripping her heart out to not respond to this person. And of course the person bad mommied her by saying, fuck you. I can't believe you're abandoning me just like everybody else. Right. But it just goes to show how no matter what, at the end of the day, you're in the driver's seat of your recovery. It doesn't matter if you're working with a therapist, they can help you. But if you are externalizing, I talked about it in my interview with Naomi, the psychic dreams, switch on Instagram of we all too often now are outsourcing our recovery. It's we're trying to get other people to save us. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, it also makes sense when people do that too, because yes. the thing is they haven't internalized a nurturing wise consciousness inside of them. So they're seeking it in their therapist. And I feel a lot like I want to cry when I, when I say that, um, you know, to need that much attunement Mm. uh, in order to build that resource resource within is so important. And the way I work is very boundaried. And I think it's actually more important for me as a client, this is really important too, that I am here as your therapist and I want a therapist to be holding their palms open and their heart to be open, but they're helping me excavate myself, all my parts and, and feeding my wise consciousness. They are not my therapist and me as a therapist is not the figure that is the God figure. Because I think that's where we create more dependency. um, That is harmful instead of interdependency and feeling whole. It's like you said, when we're in those really low places, when we're seeking out therapy, obviously you're not seeking out therapy unless you are really needing help, right? And especially that's why so many people that end up with like a borderline label or something like that, they are even shunned away from therapy because the therapists don't have the capacity and they're saying they're quote unquote treatment resistant. But what I loved about what you said there is like, people that are in that state and I've been there and I'm sure you can relate to that place too, where it's like, you don't have that nurturing, caring inner parent inside. And it's like, there's an empty hole where that should be, which is why you like had that, you know, emotional reaction. I have that same emotional reaction to that. How have you helped your clients, Tawny, 
how can we begin to cultivate that within ourselves? Like, um, Glennon Doyle has a beautiful metaphor. She talks about it as like the touch tree. She says, you need to find your touch tree within yourself. You know what I mean? How can we start developing our own caring inner parent? Yeah. I think a really wonderful way is through sensation in the body. If you have access to that, not everybody does. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people could be a hand on your heart and heart math is an organization that studies the electromagnetic fields of the heart. And they say that we actually, it's pretty cool. They, that we send that our heart sends more uh, messages to our brain than our brain does to our heart. And so when we put our hand here, we can really get this neuroception of safety if we feel our heart and we feel our heart feeling our hand that can feel a sense of interconnection or sometimes people have it with a hand on their belly or rubbing um their arms as in a hug or the butterfly touch or like your therapist has you do um like tapping tapping yeah um but another thing is outside trees or cultivating a relationship with nature that feels safe to you like even if it's a flower outside that you walk around your street just building a relationship with something that feels safe maybe more than a flower because it could be perennial so maybe a giant tree that's going to be there for a year or two or five it's know? crazy that you say this because when i was at my lowest point right before i well i've had many low points it was just one of the low points i was at a low point right before i started the podcast i had a walk that i went on and it was this big oak tree and I literally went to that tree every day. The amount of times I sat on that tree, I cried on that tree. I like, I gave the tree pieces of my hair, just like intuitively, I would wrap pieces of my hair, little strands like on the branch, took a tiny piece of bark and like put it from that tree. I still have it, even though we moved, I have it in my, um, like my altar thing over there is like a piece of that tree. And I felt more healing I, I looked forward in the morning to going to that tree like mm -hmm. and talking to it and cultivating a relationship to it so mm -hmm. i believe that fully like that that has helped me have you done similar things absolutely yeah yeah that's yeah i'm, I'm really struck by that image mm -hmm. that you put a piece of that bark and yeah from the time i was little i would do that um i would not necessarily that but i would go out and like pick cactus fruits or whatever and that became my secure form of connection yes. um, and world. kids intuitively do this isn't that beautiful like you knew to do that as a kid yeah we're i think we're a little animus when we're young you know like yeah. everything has a spirit and then that gets severed from us and i think that's a part of that severed belonging that we have is not remembering those truths that we knew when we were little on your website you have a quote from one of my favorites, Austrian uh, psychotherapist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. And his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I think that's the title of the book. You're, the quote you have is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Mm -hmm. Following that quote, you wrote, mindful inquiry helps to create that space where you may now take the reins of your life your mission your story and create in a way that feels most authentic to your truest self i believe this spaciousness is created not by denying rejecting or repressing but by acknowledging and accepting each and every part of ourselves and we've already taught i was that was beautiful and we already talked a little bit about you know you said that sacred space but we touched on 
the concept of self-compassion and self-acceptance, but I just would love for you to finish up by elaborating on that. I wrote, what role does self-compassion and self-acceptance play in the recovery process for those with serious emotion dysregulation issues rooted in attachment wounds? Mm, what a great question. Mm. Yeah. I, about two weeks ago, I got a tattoo on my arm that is a little demon guy drinking a cup of tea. I loved it. It's on her Instagram, everyone. I'll have to link to it. It's so good. Oh, my sister Sunny drew it for me, which was really special to me. But I want to answer in part with describing why I got this. And it's because there's this story that I heard from Thich Nhat Hanh and Tara Brock and uh, Vinny Farrar, which are all Buddhist meditation teachers, that there's the demon Mara. Um, and that is this little demon guy. And he was trying to basically destabilize the Buddha from enlightenment by bringing anger and rage and doubt and all of like we could imagine as inner critic things and all the things that really destabilize and disrupt our sense of inner peace to him, to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And how the Buddha responded was, I see you, Mara. Every time he brought something was, I see you, looking him straight in the eye. And then eventually offering him tea to sit down and explain like, hey man, <laughs> Or you know, non-gender <laughs> being like, what, what is hello non-binary demon hello, person? Non That's right. We all have that non-binary exactly. Everyone does. I have a non-binary inner healer and inner nurturer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay, I digress. But um, I think that that's that 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 image really speaks to me because that's what compassion means to me is i envision this like if you want to say the buddha or mother earth or whatever with their arms open and just mm -hmm. opening to you and every single aspect of you especially the parts of you that you think are wrong or bad or dirty or shameful or whatever and saying i see you and you're welcome here you belong come have some tea with me come have some tea with me and explain to me like what's going on there's that curiosity instead of get the hell away from here. Yes. I belong here, which generally like what, what we resist persists, right? I mean, that's yes. a crazy statement, but so true. It's the truest. It's, it's so like we've opened up the interview, right? Like if you, if you turn away, you, the universe source, whatever is going to be continually sending you mm -hmm. situations, people, feelings, and things just like that until you look at it and ask it to come and sit down and have tea with you, right? It's like sitting and sitting with it, right? Same thing. Same thing, just witnessing. And, you know, the question that you asked before around transference and countertransference, I'm thinking here too, in terms of who you choose to witness with you as a therapist or somebody else, like choose somebody that you feel safe with, that you know can hold all of you. And if they can't, that they're going to be able to talk to you about it because that's what we need to learn to do is holding all of ourselves. That to me is self-compassion, you know, that acceptance of, yeah, you belong. Okay. You're probably going to move on to something else. You're probably going to transform into something else. But what, it, what was it that Carl Rogers said? Something like the curious paradox being that once I accept myself as I am, that's when I can truly change. It's so true, right? Because that means that you have to accept that iteration of yourself before you can move on to the next like growth point in your journey, right? Like you have to walk in those shoes for a bit and accept them before you can learn the lessons you need to learn to move forward. Because otherwise, again, you're just going to keep, 
you're not going to move forward until you learn the lessons, right? You can suppress and numb all you want, but it's like, do you want to suppress and numb and then just stay that same angry, repressed in like representation of yourself until the day that you die? You know, like, I don't, I know I don't. It's like Zaz said to me early on in my recovery, same thing around the time that I was having my big aha moments before I started the podcast. And I just was harping on about my issues with my mom and all of the things that are valid. But it's just Zaz said to me, he's like, do you want to be that bitter old person that's complaining about the same stories like when you're 80 years old? And then him saying that, I had a flash of like that being myself and everyone knows that older person that you come across and it's like you're engaging with them and you almost are just like, please get me out of this person's presence because it's just like a toxic negative cloud and they're just complaining about the same stuff. You can tell they're living in the past and thinking about that being who I would be and that I was on track to that being my reality, like shocked me into a change. Yes, I was just, I, that's exactly the word that came to mind when you mentioned what Zaz said. Is yeah. I imagine he said it in a way that was compassionate. He a hundred percent did. He was like, I don't want that for you. You know what I mean? Because he's like, because the thing is, our partners, I had talked to him about the same stuff and he had been so supportive and compassionate, but he was like, it was like probably the 50th time I had brought up something about my mom. And he was like, Molly, we have talked about this ad nauseum, like, Basically, he said to me that, and also like, this is yours. You're going to have to figure this out. Like, but, or we can keep having the same conversation and I'm going to keep telling you the same things that I always do. But him saying that it was, you know, sometimes people say the right things at the right time that kind of give you that. And typically it's not easy to hear. That's the thing. It's going to be the tough stuff that you have to go, oh, fuck, that's hard to hear. I don't want that to be true, but it was true. I was on track to being that bitter old person. Yeah. And he was able to reach inside of you and kind of compassionately in an entombed way, shake you into a different state of being. Yeah. 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 And, but I had the capacity to hear him, you know, and that's the thing. Old Molly would have immediately assumed, oh, Zaz is against me. Screw Zaz. Right. Mm -hmm. But I had to understand that where it was coming from was, a a place of love genuinely because sometimes people can say really fucked up stuff to us and say oh it's just because i love you you know and we've all been there like there's a big difference and that's why it's so important to connect back to that inner knowing because then you really do know inside whether or not someone is coming from a true place and zaz has proven time and again that he's not perfect by any means he can slip into being an asshole sometimes just like we all can but that was not one of those moments. It was just a tough truth that I needed to hear. Yeah. And you would have felt sense of safety with him. That's probably yes. why you were able to hear it. So listeners, I guess you need to think about who is your little, who are your little demons that you need to come invite for tea? Yeah. And, and then who can like, is there somebody that can just hold you? Yes. You don't need to explain what's going on. And just so you can cry and be held. Sometimes that can be really helpful. Or maybe it's a tree. Maybe take a piece of the bark and keep it. I just I just watched the show Billions. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Oh, it's so good. Um, but 
one of the characters in it hires literally a cuddle therapist. Like basically she comes in and he just sobs while she like holds him. And really though, that's what's happened in my somatic therapy. I just cry. She tells me to scream and cry. Mm -hmm. It's some of the most healing stuff that I've ever done. More healing than talking about my shit because I am the queen of being in my head. I don't need to sit down on a psychoanalytic couch and talk more and more and more. I need to get into my body. And that's what somatic Mm -hmm. stuff has helped me so much with, which Mm -hmm. sounds like it's something that you are really into too, which is a whole nother episode. (laughs) Whole other episode because I do have some issues with the sitting on the couch and the hierarchy yep. of me telling you what's going on in your psyche. I don't feel like that's my place, and I certainly don't want somebody to do that with me. No, somatic, whether it's craniosacral, somatic experiencing, sensory motor, whatever, it's getting beyond the story, just like yes. you're saying, right? Because if we're in that rumination, a lot of times it has to do with this physiological state that we're in. And that's not to deny or reject or invalidate what we're experiencing, what you're experiencing, what anyone is experiencing is, oh, that's just, you know, dysregulation. No, but in order to move through it, just mm-hmm. like an animal needs to shake off when they almost are killed by another animal, we have to do the same thing. Otherwise, we're going to be in that like ruminating cycle. Yes. I just told the story on um, my interview with, I can't remember which interview I was on, so I won't bore the listeners with the full story, but long story short, my dog was really scared by something. I think I dropped a fork on the ground, like really close near her and it hit her foot or something like that. And my dog, what does she do? She shakes it off. She, she shook. And then I always make fun of my dog because she does like anxiety yawns. Like she'll yawn. But my dog is literally doing like neurosomatic intelligence. Like she's doing it, but we stop ourselves from doing that. You know? We do, especially, I think, for neurodivergent, mm-hmm. if we've been diagnosed with something, right? Like, I remember when I was little, uh, really holding myself in, where I would yes. shoot because I didn't want to show, like, what I needed to do in my body um, because I was diagnosed with ADHD, and that's so prevalent. Yes. Also, that well, think about if you have a ADHD diagnosis mm-hmm. as a child, you've been told you're too active, you're too disruptive. And so of course, that I watched that happen to my nephew. He was medicated from a really early age and he was the most boisterous all over the place little boy. And I watched him turn into a zombie basically. And so I can imagine how like his body was telling him what he needed to do. And then he was told by society and his family and the doctors like, that's too much. And so it's like, it then trains us, like you said, and for listeners, like Tawny did like a sinking into herself motion, you know, like, and I think we are conditioned to be very straight up and like, don't make too much noise. And especially as women, right? Like, because you don't want to be the, the one that's loud or I actually, I don't even think it's gendered. I think it's just all across the spectrum. I, I, everyone is taught to kind of just not impose your, your, somatic experience on other people yeah which in some ways it makes sense because it's it can be dysregulated you know yes yeah. when, it, when we're allowed to do it it's healthy to be in relationship with each other and our bodies in that way um i had more inattentive but it really reminds me of that episode you were talking about earlier with um i forgot their name but basically mm-hmm. the overregulation of emotions on the inside that's exactly what it feels like for a lot of people 
Um, and for, yeah, if you're in a functional freeze, that's how I spent a lot of my life, not necessarily in functional freeze, but yeah, like that overt, just, I need to make sure everything is managed inside of me. Yeah. And that is a lot of the reason why I think same. And it's a lot of the reason why I think that I don't have very clear memories of a lot of my like early childhood and adolescence because I was dissociated and basically so dysregulated that mm -hmm. I, we only really remember things. I read somewhere that if you really want to remember a moment, like if you have a really special moment with someone, if you can think like, um, touch something, smell something and see something. Right. And like, and that means that you have to what be calm and regulated and be able to create what the sacred pause, like you said, and take it in and say, Oh, I want to remember this moment. I want to remember what this person smelled like, how their eyes looked, what they said. And I don't think any of us that were in like tr chronically traumatic experiences in childhood were able to do that. And so that's why probably only really bad moments might stick out. But I think what's not talked about enough is like even some of the most traumatic experiences in my life, I only have pieces of it, you know, like I don't remember it. My sister and I will have conversations and she'll go, do you remember when we were kids and like you did this and that and the other? And I'm like, no, I don't, I'm blank. And that's a really scary feeling to have. It's like when someone remembers something and you don't remember it at all, Whew. super scary super scary and so did does, did you find that that happened with you as well i have yeah sure definitely mm. also mm. sometimes see clinically and my siblings have told me a lot about too of like the dysregulation or rather dissociation of the moment i mean living above the moment one of my exes used to say i had a thousand yard stare uh, <laughs> when when i was upset about something Yes. Uh, and you know these things protect us though they you know do. it's really intelligent even though it's sad and there's a lot of grief and we can move from it by becoming more present yep. to the beauty and the awe like when we're talking about having that wise consciousness that inner parent that loving wise one ruminating on awe and beauty is a place mm. that i go to on the daily because yes. Our brains, Rick Hansen often says, are wired for uh, positivity. It's like Teflon for positivity and uh, Velcro for negativity. So if oh. we ruminate on awe and if we ruminate on things like gratitude, but especially awe, there's something in awe that feels mystical to me, but it also feels like this big parental figure that's nourishing. Like when you look at a sunrise or a sunset or the ocean and you just allow your body and your senses to be absorbed in that greater than newness. Yes. I think that can help feel more secure and safe. I couldn't agree more. I I say in the introduction of Night Night Bitch, my other podcast, that like experiences of awe are so healing. And that's why I use that podcast to kind of be very meditative. Um, and I read like esoteric texts and stuff, anything that can help us connect with that higher part of ourselves even if you don't resonate with the particular teaching it's still forcing you to like think of something that's so big picture that it can kind of remove you from that little hurt moment that you're feeling <laughs> yes and tap into the collective unconscious yes oh 
Tani, this conversation was so great. And I know that the listeners are going to absolutely love it. I could talk to you for hours, but I know that you have a client appointment coming up soon. So I'd love to give you the opportunity to share with the listeners, where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Are you accepting new clients? And because some people might hear this and go, oh my God, I want to work with Tani. So can you share that? Yeah, thank you. Um, you can find me on Instagram. That's the only place I really post. And it's Tawny Lyons, T-A-U-N-E-L-Y-O-N-S, or my website, Tawny Lyons. And I am accepting new clients right now. I will be <laughs> linking to all of Tawny's information in the episode description so that if you'd like to connect, I highly recommend at the very least, follow her on Instagram because you're always sharing such amazing things that give me it's hard to find stuff on Instagram that's really thought provoking these days, you know, and I appreciate that you take the time to really like dive into these complex questions. So if you love my content, you'll very much love Tawny's because I feel like we're very simpatico in the things that we share. Um, (laughs) I just, I love my little Instagram community because I have I've honed my algorithm to where I only see like depth psychology and like esotericism. And so I'm like, when I go on Instagram, I'm loving it because I only see like the shit that I love. (laughs) Social media can be what you want it to be if you're careful about what you engage with and uh, and use it in the the right way. But thank you, Tawny, so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with me and Tawny on this week's episode of Back from the Borderline. If you would like to unlock ad-free episodes, you can consider becoming a premium submarine on Patreon. Not only do my premium submarines unlock ad-free episodes, but they also gain access to over 100 hours of bonus content, as well as our premium submarine Discord community. If that's not an option for you now, you can support the podcast in other ways like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the podcast on Spotify or Apple. Whichever you can do, that helps people find the podcast and ensure that the right people see this content that need it most. You can also, old school way, share this episode with someone that you love, who you care about, that you know would like it. That is the best possible way to help my podcast is sharing it with others. And you can also join the community on Instagram by following me at Back From The Borderline. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you again for being here with me. And remember, anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.